All right, good morning, everyone. Our learning this morning, as always, is dedicated. Lili Nishmas Shendel Gittel Bas Chaim Shol, and we are always grateful to our anonymous sponsor. Continuing our study of Emuna. We're on page Memhei, Nesiva Shalom. We're really finishing here the introductory uh, chapter of the Slonim Rebbe's perspective on Emuna. We're at Os Vav. And uh, last time we discussed really the theme that repeats itself over and over again. I mean, essentially, we say the same thing every week just with different words. Because the goal of talking about this is to maintain a sense of mindfulness and consciousness of the presence of the Almighty, of the Ribbono Shalom in our lives, to feel His presence. And to feel His presence not only in the good times and the happy times and the high times, but to feel His presence even in the difficult times. To feel His presence even when things are not going all that well which is really what uh, this week's parish is all about, before we even get into the Nesiva Shalom. As we begin the Sefer Shmos, Sefer Shmos begins, we know it's the Eschalta de Geula. We're beginning to feel the opening, the start of the redemption, but we yet learn about the servitude, the oppression, the persecution. And we're so far removed that we don't think of it in this way, but it was a 210-year holocaust. It was a holocaust that didn't last for a couple of years, or a few years, or less than a decade, it was a Holocaust that lasted for more than two centuries. Babies murdered, people dying from backbreaking labor, deprived of food. It was an astoundingly painful experience. And it was only when the Jews called out to Hashem, Kaddish Baruch Hu hears Tsa'akasam, their prayers, the redemption was waiting. All Kaddish Baruch Hu had to do was press go. But the appointed time had not yet come until the people had hit a deep and dark enough place that they really were calling out to him. We mentioned yesterday in the Parsha class that the Nesiv Shalom Taka says, there are four languages, Tzaka, Zaka, Shava, and uh, Anacha, where four different descriptions of the people's groan, moan, krechts, sigh, longing, cry, to Baruch Hu, that they had reached the rock bottom. They had gone to such a dark place and the Son of Rebbe says, the Nesiva Shalom on, on Sefer Shmos, he says, you know, sometimes we daven with words, but the words are a distraction. The words are there to make sure we daven. The truth is, Chazal instituted the Siddur, not because the Siddur is the most authentic form of tefillah. The most authentic form of tefillah is what we do from our hearts. It's the personal need, it's the personal longing, it's the personal desperation, it's the personal gratitude and high and appreciation. It's when we personalize tefillah that it's the most meaningful. So why'd they institute the template of the sitter? Who needs this obligation three times a day, this text? It gets, it gets burdensome, it gets old, it gets repetitive. Why'd they give it to us? And there's a number of answers to that question, but I think the most significant is because without it, there'd be days that you wouldn't daven. If you always waited to daven to be inspired, there might be days or weeks or months that would go by without your davening. So therefore... It's legislated that you have to daven. And here's the script. Here's the template. Here's what to say. Now go fill in in between. Because that's most important. But at least keep the channel of communication open by having it legislated to have to, to, have to speak to Kodesh Baruch. It also does other things. It unites Jews. We transcend time and space by sharing the same siddur. When we open the siddur and daven, we're saying the same words as our ancestors hundreds and thousands of years ago. You want a beautiful image. When you open the Siddur, you're saying the same words that your great-great-great-great-grandchildren are going to say as well. 
you will have very little in common with them. You know, they say that children born this year... I love you too, buddy. They, they say that children born right now in 2017 will never learn to drive a car. Babies being born this year and forward will never have a driver. will never learn to drive a car. There'll be automated cars. There'll be flying cars. There'll be... So your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren will have very little in common with your lifestyle right now. But you know what they'll have in common no matter what? The words of the sitter. They might be saying them on some device. They might be, you know, superimposed in the sky in 3D image and using uh, technology. Who knows how they're going to see the words. But the words of the sitter of davening, your great-great-great-grandchildren. And you may not be living in America. Mir Tashem will all be living in Israel. But wherever you're going to be living in the world, anywhere on the globe, on the planet we call Earth, we're all saying the same words. So by instituting the same words, by instituting the same rules of tefillah, it unites the Jewish people, it gives us the capacity to transcend time, to transcend space. But I think much more fundamental, it keeps the channel open so that when we need to communicate, we can. You know, we used to have dial-up internet. Sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't work. We laugh at the shul. We remember back to the early days. Rabbi Brander had his office, I had my office, Josh Brody had his office, Josh Fass had his office. There was one dial-up connection. So you'd have to on the intercom say, who's on the internet? I need you to get off. I need to get on. That's how the internet... You remember? That's how you have to get off because I need to get on. There was only one way to dial up. You know, it made that sound. You dial in. So if you weren't connected, when you needed to be, when you needed to download that thing or see or have that access or send that message, if you weren't connected, you couldn't send the message. I was in... Um, I went with a small group on a humanitarian trip to Cuba on Monday... We went in the morning, we came back that evening, and uh, it was a fascinating trip for another time, but we were disconnected from the world from when we took off till I returned. We don't remember the last time we went that long without any communication. <laughs> we're walking around Cuba, the small group, I said, you know, it, it, a meteor could have hit Boca and wiped it off the face, we would have no clue. We would have no clue. So there was something very um, traumatic about it, and there was something incredibly cathartic and liberating about it. It was, it was a beautiful thing to be disconnected. But if you don't have internet access and you have an important message to share, you can't share it. You don't have the connection. So by instituting davening, the same words, three times a day, instead of dial-up, we all have a great direct line. And then when we need to fill in other things, the line is open to be able to communicate the open line is open to be able to communicate further. So, but the most authentic form of tefillah is not the words of the sitter. That's there to make sure that we continue to communicate. But what most authentic form of tefillah is what we fill in in between. When we personalize tefillah, when we make it our own. So what's the highest level of tefillah? Says the Slanam Rebbe on our parsha. The highest form of tefillah is not with words. When you think about it, the words are a distraction. The words restrict you and confine you and limit you to those words. So the words are a great template, but it's the tefillah that you do without the words which are the holiest. With Jewish music as well, when you sing a song and you sing words, that's great. But higher than the words is a nigam, because when you just sing a tune without words, now you're not held back by having to articulate those words. Now you're not distracted or limited by those words. The tune lifts you and carries you and opens your heart and opens your soul to think and to say and to, and to meditate, and to reflect on whatever you want. So a tune without words is higher than, than a song with words. A prayer without words is higher than a prayer with words. What's a prayer without words? 
Tsaaka, Zaaka, Anacha, Shava, a groan, a krechts, a cry, a longing. What was the catalyst? What stimulated the Ribbonu Shalom to recognize our suffering and intervene on our behalf? Was not the prayers with words. It's finally with the krechts and the moan. Says the Son of Rebbe, there are four Lashonos of groaning that in, in, was reciprocated with the four languages of Geula, which we commemorate with the four cups of wine. So there was a process. When you hit that rock bottom, when you call out to Hashem, Bessalvichik saw the shofar as the same thing. The shofar is a form of tefillah. It's tefillah without words. You produce this sound, this call. The shofar is not, oh, I daven, and then I interrupt the davening for the shofar. Right? Nusach Svard, where you blow shofar in the middle of Chazar Sashatz. Yechevet grew up going on Nusach Svard Minyan. She describes the first Rosh Hashanah she spent when she went for her year in Israel. In a non-Nusach Svard Minyan, she was saying her, not the Chazar Sashatz, in the silence, she, to say, she was davening her Amida, and then she waited and waited and waited. She's like, wow, a long time. why aren't they up to the shofar blowing it? And, you know, she got lapped a few times until she realized that that, you know, Nusach Ashkenaz, you don't blow the shofar in the silent Shmonasri. So, how could you interrupt your silent Amida for shofar blowing? Were well, you doing a mitzvah in the middle? You don't, you don't interrupt your Amida to take the lul of an Esrog. You don't interrupt your Amida to sit in the sukkah. You don't interrupt your Amida to, to have sick. How could you do it with the shofar? The Rav said the shofar is not an interruption, it is a form of prayer. It's a higher form of prayer because it's without words. When you hear that shofar, you get to close your eyes and look up from the sitter. You're not struggling to remember what the words mean and did I pronounce them correctly and what are they supposed to be about. You close your eyes, you hear the sound of the shofar and it carries up your higher and more authentic form of tefillah. So this week's parasha is about being in a very dark, deep place. And you know, sometimes it's in the darkest place that you can reach the highest heights. The Kutzke Rebbe said, I paraphrase, I don't remember the exact quote, but the Kutzke Rebbe once famously said, there is no one so whole as a broken person. A broken heart. Nothing so whole, nothing as whole as a broken heart. I said I was paraphrasing. Nothing as whole as a broken heart. So Klal Yisrael and Mitzrayim were a broken heart, they were a broken people, and only in that state of brokenness did they become whole. Only from that sense of desperation, a sense of dependence, a sense of needing, a sense of reliance. You know, it should be the opposite. It should be that when you're successful and there's a flow of bracha, then you say, oh, Hashem is in my life. Wow, a house and a car and a happy marriage and nachas from children and good health and dinner to eat. And it's unbelievable. Everything's great. I just can't thank Hashem enough. But tragically, too many people have all that. That's when they forget Hashem. It's only when you're in the bad place that you, that you remember Hashem. But can you attain it with happiness too? Sometimes you're overwhelmed with something that really, you know, your grandchildren or whatever it is. Isn't that all? Absolutely. You can attain it. You can attain it. Yeah, you know, there's nothing as whole as a whole heart. <laughs> so you can attain it. You can attain it. I think that what the, the Kutzke Rebbe's chizik that he was giving us was, don't think that brokenness is antithetical to feeling whole. Don't think that brokenness is heading in the wrong direction, that you have no chance, that it's hopelessness, that it's helplessness. It's when you're broken that you can feel whole. And that's the Mesorah that we have from this week's parsha. Rashi tells us, that Hashem spoke from the snare, this lowly thorn bush. Why did He pick the thorn bush? He couldn't pick a beautiful palm tree. He couldn't pick magnificent landscape. The lowly thorn bush, that's what He had to speak to Moshe from. Says Rashi, Imo Anochi B'tzara. I want you to know that with whatever you're going through, I'm there with you. Don't think in that state of brokenness, in the state of loneliness, in the state of hopelessness, I'm not there. I'm Davka there. 
I'm there with you. I, why am I there with you? Can't I be in a happy place with you? For whatever reason, you need to be there. Because I love you, you need to be there. You know, it, it, picture the imagery of a parent who, who a child did something that they deserve to be grounded. So everyone else is going out that Saturday night. Their friends are having the greatest time ever, but you had to ground the child for whatever reason. But then you sit that Saturday night in your child's room with them, spending time laughing, trying to distract them, doing something fun with them. Because, The right thing was for you to be grounded. Right? Ah, if you love me, you're having so much fun with me, why am I home? Why can't you let me go out with my friends? Why do you hate me? Why do you hurt me? Let me go out. No, because I love you, you're grounded. Because I love you, the best thing in the world for you is to learn consequences, to learn accountability. The best thing in the world for you is you need to be grounded. But I also love you. And I'm also your parent. And I can't stand to see your pain. So, On the night that you're grounded, I'm sitting with you and we're laughing and playing and having fun. And I'm trying to distract you and lift your spirits and give you chizik because whatever reason we needed to be in Mitzrayim, Kodesh Baruch says, Imo Anochi Betzara, I'm with you. And that's the feeling that we should have. Hashem is not only accessible to us and present in our life when everything's going well, in some ways He's most accessible and most present. To a degree, the reason we go through the hardship is His, his reminder that, hey, call me. <laughs> hey, I'm here. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. Lord Advar Ma'ila, Zagta Salanam Rebbe. And understanding this whole background, that Hashem is with us, that Hashem is suffering with us, that Hashem thinks that this is in our best interest, but it doesn't mean that He's callous or insensitive, and that He doesn't want us to comfort us even within going through whatever we need to go through. So with that, we understand the Pasuk that we say every day, Shema. Hashem is Baruch Hu Echad HaMiyuchad HaMamtzi Kol HaMetzios Ba'achtus Muchletis Bechol HaNemtza Hashem is one. He is singular. He is unique. He is the source. He is the cause of all that exists. And it all exists in a unified way. In the heavens above, in the seven levels of the heavens, and on the earth below. It's a mistake of philosophers who believe, oh, Hashem's greatness means that He's in the heavens. He is distance. He's in the cosmos. He's managing multiple universes at the same time. He's balancing galaxies at the same time. Me here on earth, whether I trip on the curb or not, he's not involved in that. God, whether I get stuck in traffic or I made the turn or I just made the light, God's not involved in that. There are philosophers who believe that. Hashem is so great that His greatness, His greatness makes Him inaccessible to us. But we say that's a form of kfirah. Because if you really believe that Hashem is so great, there's nothing He's incapable of. In other words, you think Hashem is so great that it's a pagam, it's an it's a insult to suggest that He's down here on earth too. We say, no, Hashem is so great, there's nothing too hard for Him. He's in the heavens and down below. It's what we sing in Halal. Hamashpili deros, bashamayim, uva'aretz. Hamashpili. He lowers Himself to see in the heavens, uva'aretz. And on the earth below. He's down here, he's accessible. He's even in the disgusting streets of Cuba. I'm not sure, but it's disgusting. Raku is Baruch Ma'achid Akol. He alone unifies everything. He sustains, he animates everything. 
V'shem koach nifrad ein od milvado. There is no other force in the universe but Him. None. There is nothing. Right? We say this every time we get together. The ein od milvado pasuk. The mantra. If you need to meditate, if you feel stressed, anxious, nervous, worried, angry, vengeful, whatever you're feeling, which is an unhealthy thought, just keep repeating, Ein od milvado. There is no one but him. Whatever this is, is meant to be. There is a plan. Ein od milvado. Ein od milvado. Ein od milvado. Gamabriya kula is achedes baraza de echad. The whole existence is unified by this one secret. From the vegetable world, the animal world, the, the, the natural world, the human world, every component, every aspect, every participant, every creature, every creation of life, our mere existence is only with the consent and the will of the Almighty. In other words, we see many, 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 many different things. We see so much. There's so much being managed at the same time. There's billions of people on earth. There's places. There's every blade of glass. There's every, there's every gust of wind. There's every wave in the ocean. And to us, these all appear separate and independent. But to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's unified. It all comes from the same place. I heard there was a magnificent rainbow the other day uh, over Montoya Circle. Oh, yeah. It's a separate thing, but we're not, we're not really supposed to point out the rainbow. Shulchan Aruch quotes the halacha that, based on the Gemara, that the rainbow is not a positive image. It might be a beautiful sign, but it's not a positive image. It's a, it's a positive image that Hashem loves us, but it's that Hashem loves us despite what He's tempted to want to do. It's the reminder He's invoking that, that feeling. But anyway, what's, Rav Hirsch says, why did Hashem choose the rainbow? What is the image of the rainbow? First, has the most beautiful idea about the rainbow. First of all, he says, he destroyed the world and then he made a promise not to do it. Well, how does the rainbow capture that promise? So first says it's an inverted bow. The rainbow looks like a bow, but instead of the bow facing earth, as if Hashem is going to take out his, his, uh, take out his punishment on earth, the bow is facing excuse me, away from earth. He's going to detonate the missile in the sky and we'll be able to survive. That's the image. But he says, moreover, what's a rainbow? How many rays of light do you see in a rainbow? How many colors are in a rainbow? Five. I don't remember either. I was hoping one of you would answer that question. I think it's, I think it's seven. Seven? I think it's seven, the spectrum of the rainbow. But here's the question. How many, how many rays of light go into the rainbow? In other words, what we see is seven colors. But if you hold up a prism into the light... You'll see seven colors, seven hues, the spectrum of the rainbow. But how many colors go into the prism? There's one. One ray of light goes in and it's diffracted, it's refracted to appear as seven multiple colors. So the first says that's the imagery of the rainbow. That we see the manifestation, the tapestry, the color of the world. But there's one ray of light that goes in. Kaddish Baruch it doesn't matter what you look like, where you come from, what life, what, how you think, which team you root for, who you voted for. Many, many, many colors come out, but there's one ray of light that goes in, and that's this imagery of Shema. The Achtus Muchletus. It is an absolute unity. The heavens and above the heavens, the earth and everything on it. The seas and all of the 
everything. Hachayos shebayim achasi, chayos abori is baruch shemo. Sheatam hachayos kulam. Moshal, the melech, something, la'adam, asher nechlokam emenu reishmem ches evarim v'shesagidim, o yad im chamesh etzbaos, it's like, not melech, le... Yeah, mashal ma'ad avadam, psh. Wow, impressive. <laughs> it's similar to a person who has 248 limbs and 600, sorry, 365 um, uh, gidim, veins, sinews, or a hand that has five fingers. If you look at every finger individually, if you look at the hand, you'll see five separate fingers. You could bend each finger separately. Each finger is its own unit. But if you look in a unified way, you see one hand, not five separate fingers. If you see a person walking towards you, you don't say, Oh, look, there are 248 organs and 365 limbs. What do you say? There's one person. Somebody puts out their hands. You don't say, oh, thank you for extending your five fingers. <laughs> you say, thank you for extending your hand. <laughs> the five fingers all come, are all nourished by the one wrist. <laughs> Similarly, a Jew who lives with Amuna. They don't see separate things to the universe, there is an interdependence, there is an intersection, there's a matrix. And what drives the entire matrix is the Ribbon Shalom. And even the source of, of the negative influences and energies in the world, so Moshe Kodavero says that even the negative actions and negative influences also emanate from that same one place. How? Why would HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the source of all goodness, allow negative influence and negative spirit to influence? It's a separate conversation, but everything. We are to live life with the perspective and the attitude and the approach that everything is integrated and organized and functions as one unit. It's not disparate, it's not competing, it's not divided, it's not separate. It's all unified, it's all organized, it's all the great chess master in the sky who's moving the pieces and the pawns, but he's playing the game and he's a strategy to the game. And you may not understand right now why he moved that piece over there, but he was setting up a move five moves from now. If you're the lower level chess player you are, the easier someone watching you play can understand every move you're making. The higher, the better level chess player you are, the less somebody watching understands because you're not making the next move. You're never making the move. You're always eight, ten moves ahead. You play tennis, the low-level tennis player is just trying to get that ball back. All they're doing is trying to stay alive. The ball they're hit, they're trying to get the ball back. The higher-level chess player, 
I would say something nice about Farley Weiss right now, but it'll get back to him, so I'm not going to say it, and then I'll enjoy it too much. You play with Farley Weiss, tennis, so he's not just hitting the ball back. He's six shots ahead. He hits you in the corner, three shots to open up the other side, because he knows to go to the other side, and then back to here. So he's not hitting that ball. He's already six balls ahead. So chess, tennis, life. So we, we live life thinking we're just hitting the ball back. And then we look at that one ball and say, why would Hashem hit the ball to me here? You don't realize Hashem is setting things up. He's moving things around. Yeah. You don't understand why things are unfolding the way they do and where Hashem is six moves ahead. We don't understand. We don't understand. Who knows? We don't understand. We forfeit, we concede. You know, at the core of Amuna is to concede your understanding of the universe. At the core of Amuna is to be willing to give up, to let go, thinking you will understand. It is the most deeply offensive thing to us and to us on behalf of the Hashem Himself that anyone pretends to know why Hashem runs the world the way He does. Mm-hmm. Right? I was part of a group of 16 rabbis who wrote a letter about such a rabbi recently mm-hmm. and then suffered his wrath, who continues to give classes calling us every name under the sun. We're insignificant and we don't really matter and we've never accomplished anything and nobody cares about us, but he keeps talking about us. I'm, I don't know why I was asked to be in that group. I'm honored and flattered to have been in that group. But there, there are such people who call themselves rabbis and they try to do outreach by saying, this is why this one has autism, this is why this one has cancer, this is why these people died in the Holocaust, this is why this one's blind. This is why they sit there every class and it's, it's shocking how many followers they attract. But um, it's It's shocking. But this is not the way of, of, of the world. Someone who's going through something is entitled to try to figure out why they're going through it. Someone who's experiencing a struggle, a hard time, suffering, they're entitled slash encouraged to ask themselves why maybe, what do I need to improve? What do I need to correct? What should I be working on? How can I improve? But for us to suggest it about others, to make categorical statements about yeah. historical events or even other people... It's kfira, it's heresy. Because only the Almighty knows why six moves ahead. Only the Almighty moves why someone was put in time out. Only the Almighty knows why somebody was, was, uh, had to stay home Saturday night where their friends went out. We don't pretend to know. It's, like, it's, a, form of, it's a form of heresy. It's a form of kfira. It's insulting to the Ribbon Shalom. The highest amun and bitachon is when you say, I don't understand your ways. I can't comprehend you. You are so categorically different than I. I throw up my hands and I submit myself to you. At the core of religious experience is submission. Mitzalavechik has a famous footnote in his work, Halachic Man. It's not in the body of the text, it's in a footnote. Footnote 4, I think it's a famous footnote. When the Rav talks about the core of religious experience is submission. It's not, it's not popular today. 2017 religious experience is supposed to be fluffy and warm and enriching and fuzzy and kumbaya and inspirational and spiritual and amazing and meaningful. And, right? That's what religious experience is supposed to It makes you feel good. What does religious experience have to do with feeling good? Religious experience isn't about feeling good. Okay, so today we use that terminology because we're competing with... Uh, What's his name? Deepak Chopra or whoever. I don't know we're competing with. So we have to use the language of it makes you feel good and spiritual and, it, and it's, it's beautiful and it's uplifting and it's meaningful. 
and it's beneficial and there's health benefits, emotional benefits, this benefits, those benefits, all that's true. There's nothing wrong with our saying it and it's all true. But Rabbi Soloveitchik will tell you, as all of our ancestors would, they weren't religious in the ghetto, they weren't religious when being persecuted, they weren't religious when being deprived because it brought all those benefits. Why were they religious? Because there's a Rebona Shalom and this is the expectation of us and at the core of religious experience is submission. I don't understand, I can't understand, I can't necessarily always make sense of it. I have to forfeit and submit myself to you. Now, I try to understand, I try to learn, I try to research, I try to gain insight, I study Tameh mitzvos, and so on, but at the end of the day, I submit. Rabbi Zev Lef has a beautiful um, idea. I'm getting to you, Jessica. Rabbi Zev Lef has a beautiful idea. He says, you know, we do mitzvos, we do mitzvos, whether we understand the reason or not. But we seek to understand the reason. What's a, how do you say reason in Hebrew? What do we study? Ta'amei ha-mitzvos. A ta'am. What else does the word ta'am mean? Taste. 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 Why does the same word both mean taste and reason, he asks. It's in his book, Insights and Outlooks, or Outlooks and Insights. I forget which. So he, he says the following beautiful idea. He says, you know, why do you eat? You eat because you need to eat to live. Eating gives us the nutrients, it nourishes us, it gives us what we need in order to stay alive. So if you ate bread and water, would you stay alive? Absolutely. Is it delicious? Is it yummy? Do you have an appetite for it? No. But would it keep you alive? Yes. We eat in order to stay alive. We add spice and flavor because it makes it more delicious to eat. So the same thing is true with mitzvahs. We do mitzvos because we need them to spiritually stay alive. When we understand the reason, it gives it a flavor. It gives it a taste. It makes it more delicious. But even if it lacks taste or flavor or spice, you got to do it or you're going to die. So the same way you can't starve physically, you can't starve spiritually. You will die. You will wither up if you, if you don't nourish yourself spiritually. So once you're nourishing yourself spiritually, it's more delicious when it has a flavor. So the same word ta'am means both reason and flavor. Because having a reason for something flavors the experience. It makes it more appetizing. It makes it more delicious. But we have to do it either way. So at the core of the mitzvah is doing it either way. That's the submission. Hashem, you say jump, I say how high. I also ask you, why did you ask me to jump? Because if I'm jumping, understanding why I'm jumping, it's more enjoyable to jump. But even if I don't understand, or can't understand, or you refuse to explain it, I'm going to jump either way. Because when you say jump, I say, how high? So we do seek to understand. The Rav is not saying submission at the expense of understanding. But we need to emphasize, you know, we live in a world. Last Shabbos we had a guest speaker, Rabbi Ruvain Brand from Chicago. He gave an afternoon class about Holocaust, Halacha and the Holocaust. He didn't use the terminology, but it's essentially the idea of spiritual resistance in the Holocaust. Yecheva turned to me after the class and she said, how can anyone learn about and read about and hear about the sacrifices and the compromises and the questions that people were making, their fidelity, their loyalty, their devotion to halacha in these circumstances, and they still, and they not be from today. We, for whom it's so easy, never been easier Keep kosher, keep Shabbos. Everything's pre-packaged, pre-sold, done, convenient. The Shabbos light, the Shabbos lamp, the, everything is so easy. The easier it is and the less we're keeping it. And the harder it was and the truer they stayed to it. 
Because they understood something which is being lost on the next generation. That at the core of religious experience is submission. You know, you didn't ask these shilas in the ghetto and in the concentration camp because it enriched your life and made it beautiful and meaningful. You did it because you understand it's what it means to be a Jew, an Eved Hashem, a creation of this world, to submit to the king, even at incredible sacrifice and personal expense and hardship. Because in the end, they were a soul who had a body. So they, they, as starving as they were physically, they wanted to be nourished spiritually to whatever minimal degree they could be. They could be. You know, Viktor Frankl searched for meaning. That they can take your body and they can take a lot, but the real meaning is when you nourish your soul. When I went on one of the March of the Livings, by the way, we're going to be announcing this week an adult trip to Poland, the BRS trip to Poland in the third week of June. They have Naira leading a trip to Poland for anyone who wants to come. But one of the March of the Livings I went, I remember a teenager made what I thought was a very profound point, which was the more that Hitler, Yamach Shimo, and the Nazis starved the Jewish people, the more emaciated, the less of a physical being they had, the more of a soul they turned them into. We, who are fattened, and we who are tempted, and we who are immersed in the material, physical world, so we struggle. We think we are a body that has a soul. We struggle to remember that we are a soul that has a body. But the more deprived, and the less you have, and the more malnourished, all you are left is a soul. So it's not something, obviously, that we welcomed, but Hitler, paradoxically, did not accomplish his goal. His goal was to, by destroying the humanity of the people, making them a number and depriving them of food, was to take away their humanity, but he gave them even greater godliness by leaving them a soul. So to nourish our soul like we nourish the body, at the core of the emuna is to submit and to understand that we don't understand everything. We can't comprehend everything. We don't pretend to understand everything. Yes? So you were talking earlier about um, oneness and that we're all supposed to feel like all part of one community, one Hashem is one, everything is one. So why are some people predisposed in some ways and others in other ways? And what Hashem does to us is He creates us with different predispositions. Then He puts up a list about the best way to be. And we all have different aspects of ourselves that we have to work on. So some people are not tempted by chocolate cake and they naturally are inclined to eat healthy, be healthy. They're done eating when they're full. They don't overstep. And you look at those people and you say, it's not fair. Like we're living in two different planets. How come I struggle every day and you don't? Some people are patient and easygoing and calm and nothing rattles them. And other people live on edge. They get frazzled by everything. Some people lose their cool, yell and scream and, and carry on. And other, we all, there's a million character traits and we all have different predispositions. What comes easy to me is your struggle. What comes natural to you is nothing, is an enormous struggle and battle for me. So we have predispositions, we have to work on them, we have to figure out our weakness. You know, the destination is similar to all of us. There's a list, the, the, the image of what we are all trying to look like in terms of virtue and nobility and the character traits we all, it's similar. But how we get there, we each have, and that's what makes us unique. That's what, makes, that's what personalizes each of our lives. So any machlis, you know, to hug a smelly, disgusting Jew because that's your sister and you love them and you don't even notice their odor, that came naturally for her. But who knows if 
whatever other thing was really hard for her. Even her kids said that, like, how did mom do this? You know, yeah, it's not so simple. Her own children, it's it's not so simple. So I think it's a matter of we should never be jealous or envious of what comes natural for another person because we have no idea what comes difficult for them. You never know what someone else is battling. You don't have a clue what someone else is battling. So it's easy to look at someone for whom something comes so easy and be jealous. But we have no idea what comes easy for us that the other person is battling. What we all do know is the path where we're trying to head, what we're trying to work on that we all need to try to do together. I think the reason I mentioned it was because if we really took this apart that we felt we were all one, then when things happen in the community, we would just right, step in. You know, I understand people have different dispositions, but if it was really there, if we really took it to heart, we'd be more unified. Yeah, look, it's complicated. You're right about that, but it's complicated because it's not just the community. It's the total Jewish community, and it's not just the Jewish community. It's the community of humanity. So if, if we really froze every time you read in the news about an earthquake, a tsunami, a death, a plague, you know, the deprivation in, in, in the starvation in Africa, you, you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning if you felt everyone's pain. So we're supposed to see the whole world as integrated, one big chessboard. Kirsch Baruch is moving the pieces. We don't understand his ways, but we do know how we're supposed to try to play the game to the best of our ability and so on. So on the one hand, we should see the whole world as one matrix, as one integrated system, that the source of the entire thing is the Ribbon Shalom. And we could be inspired by those people around that. Right. And when we sit, we read those books and we, we try to, you know, we're also assuming that Henny Machlis was always Henny Machlis. And I don't know that she was always Henny Machlis. She, she became, right, she became Henny Machlis. You know, the Chavetz Chaim wasn't always the Chavetz Chaim. Rav has a letter to a student in his Igros in the Pachad Yitzchak. Rafutner writes to a student who's ready to give up because they can't conquer their, their demons. And Rafutner says, you know, we have this disservice that you read about the Chavetz Chaim and you read about this one and that one and you assume they were born that way. And Rafutner writes, you think the Chavetz Chaim never spoke Lashon Hara as a child? He worked on himself to become the Chavetz Chaim and that's why we talk about him today. So it's a matter of working on ourselves to become those people. That's why we have imperfections of our, of our of us and Imos. Right, we have the imperfections of our avos. Look, it's, it's a whole other topic of this genre of literature that's called hagiography, whereas not biography, hagiography, which is a fancy way of saying you write about a person as if they were perfect from the moment they came from the womb. And when you read those books, you can draw some inspiration, but you draw the most inspiration when you read and you say, wow, I didn't realize that really they were quick to anger, but they conquered it. Really, they, they didn't love learning, but they learned how to love learning? Oh, really, they whatever, but they learned. The more honest and the more real, the more relatable and the more inspirational. Okay, I'm going to try to catch the end of this bris, so... Okay. Wishing